Hi, hello, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between. I am your host, Jessica Lemon, and you are listening to Sour, Sweet, and Spooky. I hope you have all been well. I really wanted to get this episode out much earlier, but I have just not been feeling well, so my research time kept getting cut short because I just needed to go lay down. And then my computer died, so that's been fun. But I'm feeling better, and I'm excited to get into today's show because today's episode is a continuation of the Manson family. In episode three, I covered Charles Manson's past and how he made his way to Los Angeles, California, where his story ended up captivating the world. Today, I dive into how exactly Charles Manson became infamous. I'm going to take a look into his followers that called themselves his family, his journey to be a rock star, and the murders that took place on August 8th, 1969. If you haven't listened to episode three yet, that's okay. Go ahead and pause right now. Don't worry. I will wait for you to get all caught up to the story. So go, go listen, go ahead. Okay, you're back. All caught up? Great. Now let's jump into part two of the Manson family. last episode with Manson finally being released from prison after spending more than half of his life in and out of institutions. A man who had known nothing other really than committing crimes just to get by. But now out of prison, a free man, he used his charisma to get him where he longed to be, in a room with a music producer. But the way he got there is questionable, at least. Manson moved to San Francisco after his release in March 1967 and managed to get a room at an apartment complex in Berkeley where he met Mary Brunner. She was a 23-year-old library assistant at the University of Berkeley where she had just graduated. Soon, Manson moved in with her and not long after that, with some convincing, another 18 women had moved in. Manson basically marketed himself as a hippie guru, and I mean, it was the 1960s, so that was the style, that was the thing young people wanted to get into, and Manson knew that. This is where his cult started. The many women and few men that had joined him called themselves his family, the Manson family. They believed something along the lines of what the Process Church of the Final Judgment believed, that Satan would become reconciled with Christ and that they would come together at the end of the world to judge humanity. Manson made his followers believe that they were reincarnations of the original Christians. He would tell them that he then was Christ and would tell stories about himself being nailed to a cross to further pull his followers into his cult. They truly believed that Manson was the next coming of Christ. Manson and a few members of his family piled into an old school bus that they had renovated to be very in style for the time. You know, carpeted top to bottom, string beads and peace signs, just so they could travel the country. They went to Washington State, Los Angeles, Mexico, more of the Southwest, and ended up back in the Los Angeles area, where they settled in Topanga Valley. This is where Charles had his third child, Valentine Manson, with Mary Brunner. Manson, now in LA, had become more known among the film and music industry crowds, some calling him dynamic, and that he just knew how to manipulate people by finding their weaknesses without them even realizing it. He was charismatic, charming, and said to have been a really nice guy. A little rough around the edges, and kind of weird, but nice. It was here in LA that he sent some of his family members out to hitchhike, hoping that they may be picked up by a celebrity that he could take advantage of, and he got very, very lucky. In spring of 1968, Manson sent Patricia Krenwinkel and Ella Jo Bailey out to catch a ride. 
The two were intoxicated with alcohol and LSD, which was very common among Manson and his commune. The girls were picked up by the drummer of the Beach Boys, Dennis Wilson. They hung out for some time before Dennis had to head out for a late night recording session, and when he returned home, Manson was waiting for him. After an awkward introduction where Manson convinced Dennis that he wasn't going to hurt him and then kissed his feet, they went inside to find about 12 more women from the family just lounging around. Manson made himself at home at Dennis's. He played, with, he played with the fact that Dennis felt like he wasn't as involved or as loved as the other members of the Beach Boys, and Manson made him feel wanted. He gave him drugs and girls, and in return, Dennis let them stay, and eventually they racked up a bill of around $100,000, which today whew, is about three quarters of a million dollars. Yeah, $750,000. This money was used to treat the family's gonorrhea that most of them had, $21,000 for an uninsured car that the family had borrowed and then crashed, food, and more. $100,000? Even now, that's a lot of money. You know what I could do with $100,000? I'd probably buy a house and adopt, like, 20 dogs. But, like, $100,000. I It's just a, a lot of money. And Dennis just, like, let them do all of this because Manson knew how to manipulate him. Manson and Dennis would write music together and go record at the studio, and Manson really felt like this was his time. Dennis introduced Manson to some big guys in the music industry, Greg Jacobson, Terry Melcher, and Rudy Altobelli. Terry Melcher liked Manson's whole package, his lifestyle and his philosophies and his artistry, but didn't quite know what to do with him. They paid to record Manson's work, but still weren't sure how to market him, so they let him go. Soon, Dennis's lease was up at his home, and he moved out, leaving the family there, and they were evicted, and made their way to Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch had been used as a film set for years for old westerns, but over the years had started to fall apart. By the 60s, it was crumbling, but Manson saw an opportunity. He and his family moved onto the ranch and made it their home. The owner, an 80-something-year-old nearly blind man named George Spawn, let the family stay there because Charles made women from the family sleep with him, do whatever he asked. George lived in the main house and not the crumbling ranch, so Lynette Squeaky Fromm would often volunteer to go to the main house since it was so much nicer than where the family was staying. She got her name from the noise she made when George would squeeze her leg. Ugh. Charles Tex Watson became a big part of the Manson family soon after he moved to Los Angeles. Other prominent members of the Manson family included Mary Brunner, Susan Atkins, Linda Casavane, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Lisa Van Houten. The family lived and worked and schemed to get by when Manson was introduced to the newest Beatles album, The White Album. He became obsessed with the group, as did a lot of people in the 60s, but Manson took his obsession further. He dove into the meanings behind the songs that the Beatles would release and one song in particular took him by the hand. Manson believed that there was an impending war that would break out between the black communities and the white communities, ending up in a race war that would cause an apocalypse. Manson called it Helter Skelter, after the Beatles song by the same name. He made his family believe that the Beatles' music wasn't just popular music, but that it was written for them, for the family, to hear and learn from, all of this coming from secret codes hidden within the music. The family went on to create their own album that would predict the chaos and horrendous murders of white people being killed by black people and that the racist white people would fight against the ones that weren't and cause what he said would be a self-annihilation of white people and that the black people that remained would then be ruled by the Manson family themselves. This is what he would preach to his followers. Together, they worked on their album and were told that Melcher would come visit to listen to see if he wanted to sign them and a feast was prepared. But Melcher never showed up. This is where Sharon Tate falls into the story. You see, those music guys we spoke about earlier owned a home 
a home that Manson had been to at some point in his chats with them about his music career, a home on Celio Drive, now rented out by young starlet Sharon Tate and her film director husband, Roman Polanski. Manson had visited the house a few times after finding out that Mulcher no longer lived in the home, but he knew that someone of importance did live there, someone with money. But before his family would return to Celio Drive, there were some other manners to take care of. Things that Manson said needed to happen in order to get Helter Skelter off the ground. One was the murder of Bernard Crow. Bernard, also known as, I'm sorry if I get this wrong, Lotsa Papa? Literally spelled out like Lots A Papa? Okay, he was a drug dealer that Tex Watson defrauded, and because of this, Crow threatened to kill everyone on Spawn Ranch. The family lured Crow to Manson's Hollywood apartment where he was shot and killed. Manson believed Crow was part of the Black Panthers and believed this death would cause the Black Panthers to retaliate and come after white men and the beginning of Helter Skelter would commence. Another murder committed by the family was that of Gary Allen Hinman, who was a music teacher at UCLA. Manson and his family thought that Hinman was loaded, like had lots of money or was about to inherit a lot of money and tried to get him to join the family. But when he refused, they held him hostage and tortured him. Allegedly, on Manson's command, he was killed. And one of the women wrote in blood on the walls, political piggy, and drew a paw print to reference the Black Panthers to make it look like they had committed the crime. August 6, 1969, Bobby Boussoulet, a family member, was arrested after he was found driving Hinman's car and the murder weapon being found in the trunk of the car. Two days later, Manson proclaimed that Helter Skelter had begun. He instructed Tex Watson, Linda Cassabane, Susan Atkins, and Patricia Krenwinkel to go to the home on Celio Drive, Mulcher's old residence, and kill everyone inside. Manson instructed the women to listen to everything Tex Watson said that night, and so they set off. The four arrived at Melcher's old place, just past midnight on August 9th, 1969. Watson cut the telephone lines to the house and parked their car at the end of the street leading up to the house. They jumped the fence and began walking towards the house when headlights came at them. Watson stepped in front of the car and told the driver to stop. The driver was 18-year-old Stephen Parent, who was just visiting the caretaker of the property who lived in the guesthouse. He was on his way home. Watson pulled out his 22, and Stephen begged for his life. He pleaded with Watson as Watson approached him, saying he wouldn't tell anyone. He just wanted to go home. He would keep his mouth shut. He promised. But Watson stabbed him in the hand and then shot him four times in the chest, killing him right there. It was a nice summer night in Los Angeles, so Sharon Tate, eight and a half months pregnant at the time, and her guests, Jay Seabreak, a hairstylist and Sharon's former boyfriend, Wojcik Frakowski, an aspiring writer and friend of Roman Polanski, and his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, the heiress to Folger's Coffee, had the windows open to get a nice breeze throughout the house. Tex took this as an invitation and sliced open the screen to one of the windows and entered the home. Tex told Linda to go wait at the car and keep watch, so she stepped away. Watson then let Patricia Krenwinkel and Susan Atkins in through the front door. Tex whispered to Susan, who woke Wojcik, who was sleeping on the couch. Tex kicked him in the head, and Wojcik asked who they were and what he was doing there. And Watson replied, I am the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. He told Susan and Patricia to find the rest of the people in the house and bring them into the living room. Watson then began to tie Sharon Tate and Jay Seabrig together by their necks. They were being rough, and Seabrig shouted at them to stop treating the pregnant Tate with so much force, to be careful with her. So Watson shot him. Folger was escorted back to her room to get the money she had in her purse. She only had $70 on her. Watson then stabbed her seven times. 
Wojciech was only bound by a towel, so he was able to free himself and began to fight with Susan Atkins. She stabbed him multiple times in the legs, but he was able to get outside. But Watson caught up to him and hit him over the head with the butt of his gun several times. He stabbed him before shooting him twice. Linda, hearing how awful things sounded, ran back up to the house. She screamed at them to stop and said someone was coming to get their attention so they could run away. She was the newest member of the Manson family. Only had been with them for around a month. She pleaded for Watson to stop. Back inside the house, Abigail Folger managed to escape from Patricia Krenwinkel's grasp and ran for it. Around the pool, back to the front yard, where Krenwinkel caught up to her. Her and Tex stabbed Abigail 28 times. Wojcik struggled across a lawn, clinging to life, but Tex finished him off. He was stabbed a total of 51 times and was hit 13 times over the head by Tex's gun, damaging the gun so badly parts were later found in the lawn by investigators. Sharon Tate was still inside. She begged and pleaded with the killers to take her hostage, let her have her baby, and then they could do whatever they wanted to her. Just let her have her baby. Susan Atkins, who had just given birth herself a few months earlier, stabbed Sharon Tate 16 times. The deed was done. All of the people at the Celio Drive home had been killed. Manson had instructed Atkins to leave a sign, something witchy. So she grabbed a towel, dipped it in Sharon Tate's blood, and wrote pig on the front door. The next night, after hearing how wild the previous night had gone, angered, Manson took the four he had sent the night before, himself, and Leslie Van Houten on another murder task. This time, their target was a home next to a house Manson had partied at in the past, a home in the Los Feliz area. Manson took his family to the home of supermarket executive Leno LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary, who was the co-owner of a dress shop. See, Manson wanted to show the group how to properly pull off a murder. He hated how messy the Tate murders had gotten, how the victims were able to get away and cause a commotion before being captured again and killed. When they arrived, Manson went up to the house, and when he returned, he told the family that he had tied up the occupants and for Watson to follow him. When they got back up to the house, Manson pointed out a man sleeping on the couch through the window. Manson and Watson came in through the back door that was unlocked. Manson woke up Leno, who had been the one sleeping on the couch, and held him at gunpoint, while Watson tied him up. Rosemary was brought in from the bedroom and placed in the living room next to her husband. Manson then instructed Watson to cover the victim's heads with pillowcases, which he then secured by wrapping lamp cords around their necks. Manson then left. He met back up with the girls outside and sent Krenwinkel and Van Houten into the home with instructions to make sure that the couple was killed. Manson had given Watson a bayonet, which is one of those knife pieces attached to the ends of a rifle. He was happy with this as he complained at the inadequacy of the previous night's weapons. Watson took this bayonet to the living room and began stabbing Leno in the neck. He then heard a scuffle in the bedroom where Rosemary had been returned to. He stepped away from Leno and found Rosemary holding her own with the girls by swinging the lamp that's cord had been tied around her neck at them. Watson lunged at her and stabbed her several times with the bayonet and then returned to the living room to continue to stab Leno. He stabbed him a total of 12 times. Watson then carved the word WAR in all caps on Leno's stomach. He returned to the bedroom where Krenwinkel was in the act of stabbing Rosemary with a kitchen knife. Manson had instructed Watson to make sure everyone had a part in the killing of the couple, so Watson told Van Houten to also participate. Van Houten began stabbing Rosemary. She stabbed her 16 times. She later revealed that she believed that Rosemary was already dead, and during the investigation it was found that of the 41 stab wounds that Rosemary endured, many had been post-mortem. After the couple had been murdered, Watson cleaned off the bayonet, and took a shower in the home. Meanwhile, Krenwinkel soaked up some of the blood so she could write rise and death of pigs on the walls. She also attempted to write helter-skelter in the fridge, but spelled it incorrectly. She spelled it as helter-skelter. 
She then went over to Leno and with a carving fork left 14 puncture wounds in his abdomen. She left the fork sticking out of his body. She also took a steak knife and stuck it into his throat. Though Manson had left the LaBianca home, he had taken the other members to a home in Venice where he dropped them off and instructed them to kill again. They were to kill an actor, but Caspian purposely knocked on the wrong door to avoid this, and they left. And that was that. In the span of 48 hours, Manson had instructed his members to kill seven innocent people, and it took nearly four months of investigation to arrest him. But that's a story for next time. True crime has so much information, and I'm going to dive into the investigation soon, I promise. For now, though, I want to thank you so much for listening. I'm so excited to keep bringing you guys these stories every week. I'm loving your feedback through messages on Facebook and DMs on Instagram. I love chatting with you, so please don't be afraid to come say hi. You can contact me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's just at SourSweetSpooky, or you can email me at SourSweetSpooky at gmail.com. If you want to follow me personally, please do it online and not in person, which you can do on all of my socials at JessicaLemon with two L's. If you yourself want to look more into this story, head to the SourSweetSpooky.com website. I have all of my source information there for you. I also still have some awesome items left in my shop. Order some SourSweetSpooky merch, and I'll send it to you with a cute little personal note. I love mailing out your orders and it really does help me in the show who knows maybe just shop sales and some sponsors i can quit my day job now that would be a dream thank you again so much for listening i am your host jessica lemon and i'll see you soon with part three of the manson family and remember stay sour stay sweet stay spooky